Every week, Hillsdale College President Larry Arn joins Hugh Hewitt to discuss great books, great men, and great ideas. This is the Hillsdale Dialogues, presented by Hillsdale College. To find more episodes, search for Hillsdale Dialogues at SoundCloud, Apple Podcasts, TuneIn, iHeart, and Ricochet. Morning, Glory America. Bonjour. Hi, Canada. I'm Hugh Hewitt. That music means the Hillsdale Dialogue is underway. Dr. Larry Arn, president of Hillsdale College, is my guest, as he is most weeks. There are 460 Hillsdale Dialogues. They're all at hughforhillsdale.com, but they're better collected and archived at iTunes, the Hillsdale Dialogue. They go in reverse order back to 2013 when we began them. I can't believe we've never done this before, but we are now embarked upon the history of the English-speaking people by Winston Churchill, a project I persuaded Dr. Arn um, to consent to because I don't believe a lot of America has any idea how we ended up here, either personally or collectively. And we only ended up here if you know the Jews, the Greeks, the Romans, the English, and American history. And Churchill gets us from Caesar to... um, 1910, I think, in this book, uh, Dr. Arn, And into this, in book two of volume one, strides William the Conqueror, and he falls on his face. Fine way to begin a conquest, isn't it? Yeah, yeah. It, uh, yeah, so the, you know, that, you know, there's this sort of microcosm of the story of Britain. America's story, by the way, is very romantic. You know, people coming across the sea, people going across the, the, uh, continent, you know, founding governments that are free, all that. That's uh, wars, fighting the Native Americans, you know. Well, Britain's story is like that, too, uh, because what happens? Uh, Harold is the king of England. He has a bunch of Vikings invade around the corner on the coast from where Hastings is, uh, uh, my wife's godmother, by the way, uh, lived in a house called Tudor Cottage, and it was. Oh. And it, it, uh, it, it's about 100 yards from where William landed. And then it's interesting, you know, the, uh, that was where the British invasion was going. I'm sorry, the German invasion was going to come. And <laughs> Kathleen was her name. She remembered lots of bombers going over her house on their way to London. And so that, you know, William, but uh, around the corner on the British coast to the north and west, uh, uh, Harold is off fighting some Danes, and he beats them. Soundly. Yeah, and, you know, that's so big deal. I'm, I'm on a roll here. And then he marches himself down in a hurry to meet William, and four or five hours later he's dead. And uh, so that was a, a day of ups and downs. Uh, uh, the, the, he, he charts, Churchill does, William the Conqueror is running a business enterprise, the Vikings are coming for loot, and Harold goes north, beats them all, marches in a heck of a short period of time for the period of 1066, fights them, turns around, heads south again, and he says, again, this is very Churchillian about Harold, who is defeated by William the Conqueror, Yet ever must the name of Harold be honored in the island for which he and his famous house earls fought indomitably to the end. He uh, that gets Churchill's salute. Yeah, yeah, and you know you have to remember 
Harold, you know, had been had come second in some uh, controversies about the succession to the monarchy, and he'd been exiled for a while, and he was uh, William's guest, and William sized him up when he was over there, and that's one of the things that led to the Norman conquest. But he didn't prove that easy to beat. And, no, he didn't. Uh, Churchill. Not- I want to make sure I mention, because I mentioned to you Foyle's War last week, which the Fetching Mrs. Hewitt and I enjoy immensely, uh, and with, when, when we have the subtitles on, because we can understand it. But there is, in season four, a farmer who says this land goes back to the Doomsday Book, which is actually a 1068 deal. Uh, uh, the Normans want to know what the land is, who it belongs to, and what they can take. Yeah. Yeah, and what they can, yeah, not, not you know, the William the Conqueror was an excellent ruler, and he, he sized up all the values, and he needed taxes, but he didn't need to take too much. And so the order that came with William was a good thing. You know, my but, wife's family were not the worst invaders. No, they weren't, and they brought a lot. They brought order. Discipline. Yeah. Two points in this first book I want to get to in this uh, in this segment. The um, William de Henry to Henry II and Eleanor of Aquitaine. People have watched The Lion in Winter. I don't know if you're a fan of the movie, and so they'll know Richard John and the and and the shenanigans. What do you make of all that? Uh, movies about England in this period. That's a great one. There are several great ones, right? And. What's great about that, that one, and first of all, Peter O'Toole is not bad, but uh, it shows what, those, what the temper to rule is like, you know, the ability to do it. Because there's a lot of people in that movie who are lightning fast, especially Catherine Hepburn and Peter Eleanor of Aquitaine. And they, you know, they, they meet, they spar, they fight to a standstill. They retreat, and they come and do it again. And that's what it's like, you know, being around power and using power all the time. And now, his son, Henry II, grandson, William the Conqueror's grandson, Henry II, looms large in Churchill's memory. And he utters the famous phrase, What a pack of fools and cowards I have nourished in my own house that they will not avenge me of this turbulent priest. Yeah. Thomas yeah. Beckett. Quote, The tragedy was fatal to the king. He could have said it was fatal to Thomas Beckett. He says it's fatal to the king. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah, and see, you know, there's an argument that the king didn't want him killed. But, you know, there's a bunch of people standing around with swords who hear him say that. And, you know, that Thomas Beckett was a great man. And and uh, he was a clerical ruler, able to stand up to kings, including very strong kings. And they killed him in the chapel. And uh, and that's because, uh, you know, that's a separation of church and state is a beautiful, beautiful principle. More beautifully put, it's religious freedom, right? And what that would mean is people get to worship how they want, and if they want to give some money to the church, the church gets to keep it. That's what the dispute was about. And Henry, Henry wanted revenues out of the churches. And it was ghastly. The consequences for Henry II of, uh, of encroaching upon the church were ghastly for his rule, which would otherwise have been without 
Mar. But he does note, Churchill notes this, I wanted your comment on this, Dr. Ron. In modern conflicts and revolutions in some great states, bishops and archbishops have been sent by droves to concentration camps or pistoled in the neck in the well-worn, brightly lighted corridor of a prison. We, what a claim we have to avant superior civilization to Henry II's time. We are sunk into barbarism all the deeper because it is tolerated by moral lethargy and concerned with the veneer of scientific convenience. The note suggests he wrote that in 1938. He's very aware of what's underway in the world. Oh, yeah. Yeah, he, you know, Churchill thought that this, and, you know, that whatever this age is, in some important respects, it's worse now than it was when Churchill was alive. And he thinks that it's barbaric, right? The way people are used, uh, and, you know, in, in our time, people are used as part of a scientific experiment. And it's almost, you know, it's a bipartisan thing extensively. I've been uh, fighting about the schools, especially a lot lately, because of one thing and another. And what I protest about is uh, parents are crucial, right? Nobody gets to own anybody else. But parents have a natural authority to raise their minor children. And it's appointed in nature that they love them most commonly and can be best relied on to do that. And you're... and you know, the system has been created now so that the schools are governed, governed from afar and the parents don't get a look in. Uh, I'll mention the very great governor of Virginia came to see me the other day. He's just an awesome guy. He called up and said, I'm in Michigan. Can I come see you? And I said, yeah, get over here. And he just, he's, he's tweeting great things about the college, right? But here's, He said so many great things, but one of them was, anybody asked me about education, the first word out of my mouth is parents. But you see, if we're taking people's children from them, that's barbaric. And educating them in things about which the parents do not know. Yeah. That's Churchill's warning. Don't be so sanguine about your own times and progress. You aren't that different. The same... The same malevolences are about. I'll be right back. Dr. Arn and I talk about the English common law when we return. The glory of Great Britain. Stay tuned. Welcome back, America. I'm Hugh Hewitt. Dr. Larry Arn, president of Hillsdale College, and I are embarked upon a many weeks process, and it will become months before we're done with the books of Winston Churchill. We are in the first volume of the history of the English-speaking people, book two. There is therein a chapter from pages 215 to 225. It's only seven pages, the English common law. I assign it to my law students, Larry Arn, as I assign the chapter later on the American Constitution, because it should be the first day of every Civ Pro class. Uh, the, a man can only be accused of a criminal offense or civil offense, which is clearly defined and known to the law. Secret processes are banished. Quote, these sinister dangers were extinguished from the common law of England more than six centuries ago. Much of it was then unwritten, and in England, much still remains so. Talks about the ends of court developing, the slow but continuous growth of law, the rule of law. And that is probably the greatest testament of the English people, not the Napoleonic Quarrel, not the Roman Civil Code, but the common law. Yeah. And, you know, it just shows the temper of the time. And our time is so different from this, right? 
Yes. Because where does the common law come from? You know more about this than I do, but let me talk for a minute. Please. Uh, uh, a judge makes a decision. Uh, the details of the case and the decision are written down, and it is referred to later when similar cases arise. And that means that people are deferring to people they don't even know, right? That's the rule of law. Yes, the it rule is. of law means it doesn't matter who the parties are similarly situated, they are to be treated the same. And that's so, that's fundamental. There's no justice without that. There can be no justice without that. And, and that, you need, and that you... grew up without a plan, right? They just started writing stuff down and remembering it. And remember, I, I want to call into, this happened a few weeks ago, Judge Cannon ruled that a special master would be appointed to oversee the seizure of President Trump's papers from Mar-a-Lago. I do not, not know how that's going to turn out or whether it was right or wrong, but she noted this is a unique circumstance. This has never happened before, so we're going to treat it differently. So like cases alike, unique circumstances uniquely treated. Yeah. And, yeah, I like that because... Uh, you, you have to wonder if the prosecution is to eliminate a political enemy. Yes. And so whatever can be done to remove the taint of that, and my own opinion is that'll take a lot of removing. But uh, that's, you know, because you can't have confidence in the po- political system if the strong don't bow to the weak. And uh, that's that's what the rule of law means. And, and we don't know how it's going to turn out. I mean, no. it could turn out badly for Trump or well for Trump, badly for Biden. Well, for, we don't know, but we know that it's a unique circumstances in the common law uh, developed slowly but continuously so that I think you already just articulate like cases alike. That's yeah. the rule of law. Yeah. And you can't. And, you know, that's uh it's a, it's a, the common law is a little bit like what I understand the uh, the Torah and the Talmud to be. Yes. It's it's a record. There's an original source in the Torah, and then there's reasoning about it for hundreds of years, and the reasoning is preserved and makes a record that one can recur to and divine the truth from or divine guidance from. So that, you see, that's... uh, And the the reason that's important is actually not because the past is superior to the present. Uh, It's certainly not true that the present, this present, is superior to the past, in my opinion. The point is, a frame of reference outside your own will, that's what matters. That's it. And that's it. That's the rule of law. That's it. And that's, you know, so lose that, you lose everything. And when we come back, we're going to talk about how, look, that, he spends time on it, but then he goes right back. The common law has to be one of those chapters that stands alone because it goes backwards and forwards hundreds of years. But then we're right back with Richard the Lionheart at Go, Go Anywhere America, back to the glory of the sword and the invasions and all that good stuff when we return to the Hillsdale Dialogue.
there's one line in this next segment of Winston Churchill's History of the English-Speaking People that Churchill nails Richard the Lionhearted. He loves him for his courage, for his crusades. He was without malice against his enemies. He was not habitually cruel or or treacherous. He was ready to forgive as he was hasty to offend. But, Dr. Arne, the indulgence of Richard had allowed his brother John to form a state within a state. I thought that particularly relevant to our times, because that is a dangerous thing. Yeah. If, uh, you know, it's, uh, it's obvious to me that Churchill thought that the Crusades were foolish. Uh, and, you know, they're holy and they're moved by a great spirit. But on the other hand, is Christianity the kind of faith where the place matters decisively? Uh, I don't think so. And, uh, and so, you know, might be nice. I mean, for example, I, I hate it that uh, the Hagia Sophia is a mosque because it was built for a Christian church. And, uh, that, you know, so that's too bad because it's a, it's a huge historically important thing. But the thing is, Churchill's saying, where was Richard when he was supposed to be ruling the country? And a state within the state, the reason that's necessary is, uh, by King John's own admission, he's not the rightful ruler. He's ruling in the name of somebody else. And so he sets up a little mini-state of him and his friends, and they function that way, and that's not good for England. Shakespeare's play, King John, is extremely uh, instructive about all this. We we talked about that with Stephen Smith a few months ago, and I had it in mind when I was reading that. But I also we frequently repair to the common situation in school districts, public school districts across the country right now. They are states within states, and your elected school board members will be briefed by a superintendent who may or may not tell them what is going on. And parents will or will not be welcomed at the microphone and cut off when they are unfortunate in their suggestions or animated in their remarks. That's a state within a state. Yeah, that's right. I had a school board person say, put it nicely the other day, he said, you've been elected to represent us, the officials of the school district. (laughs) And not 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 the not the citizens of the community us and uh, that's you know you've been uh, the co- community has raised you up to the exalted station of working for us and we need we need a magna carta moment on schools and i think uh, we'll come to runnymede in june of 1215 in a second but what doug Ducey just did in arizona the dollars will follow the student we're not going to fund a system, we're going to fund a student. So whatever we pen, spend on a per capita basis, that child gets a check. Take it where you will, but show us that you're enrolled either at home, in a private school, secular or sectarian or public school, but show us where you are at the end. But that is a revolution, Dr. Arn. I think it is well, well overdue, and I think it will be wildly popular. Yeah. Uh, I like it for a lot of reasons. and One is the average school will be... Uh, improved by the influence of parents because they tend to love their children. I don't know why I got children and grandchildren of my own. Why do I love them? I don't know, but I do. Uh, but the other thing is, it gives p- 
parents and the community practice in governing a civic institution. And in Tocqueville, you read that the reason America is so good at governance is because everybody gets to practice all the time. Now we wait for rules to be made. Yeah. Now, now let's get back to history. Edward Longshanks shows up after John uh, does his deal with the barons at Runnymede. And it's important. Churchill spends some time making sure people don't think Magna Carta is going to lift their spirits if they read. It's a contract between feudal barons and a king about their rights. It's a contract. But along comes Longshanks. And he's only known to Americans generally because of Braveheart. And he doesn't look very good in Braveheart, but he was actually a ferocious and a fairly good ruler. Well, I, you know, in this chapter, which is very artful, uh, he, he goes through a transition from the great man, uh, Edward Longshanks, long marches, you know, strikes suddenly at a distance, huge energy. He goes from that guy into the tyrant. And, uh, and you know, Ch- Churchill has great sympathy with William Wallace, you know, who was... Yes, he does. Heck of a guy. Do you know the screenplay for that was written by Randall Wallace, the, uh, a descendant of William Wallace. And I knew, Randy's been a guest on the show. It's a, it's a great movie. It will last for, it will never not be watched. Yeah, it's sad at the end. <laughs> Freedom is not what he was probably crying. It's good for cinema, but that's probably not how he felt. Yeah, I mean, you don't, that guy is so noble and he's so wronged that you don't want him to get disemboweled at the end. Yeah. Uh, Not the way anyone wants to go out of this world. No, no. Yeah, but it's, uh, you know, those are, and, you know, Churchill is good at war, seen a lot of war and studied a lot of war, too. And so the way those battles went and, you know, what it takes to win a battle, and, you know, in one way, it's in this chapter is especially clear, uh, what they've got to fight with is the stuff around them. The land, the land, the lay of the land, where the woods are, where the hills are, where the depressions are. And then also the trees, which you can make long poles out of to stop the cavalry. And then vantage points, right? And Wallace was really good at that. And Edward Longshanks was really good at that, too. And, and uh, they meet... Often, and Longshake wins in the end, but William Wallace gets his due. Um, I want to go up to a weak ruler for a moment, Henry III. And people have to read the whole books to get the whole thing down. But I love, in particular, page 262, against Henry III, a weak king. The rebellion of the barons was quelled by fights on land and sea. At Lincoln, the king's party had gained a fantastic but nonetheless decisive victory. In the streets of Lincoln, during a whole day, we are told that 400 royal knights jostled and belabored 600 of the baronial power. Only three were killed in combat. Contemporary opinion declined to accord the name of this battle to this brawl. It is called the Fair of Lincoln. <laughs> now, these almost invulnerable chain-mailed monsters waddled about in the throng, chasing away or cutting down unarmored folk and walting each other hard when they met, but perhaps not too hard. <laughs> That's Churchill taking liberty, Dr. Art. Oh yeah, um, his uh, that that theme is suggested in a better way in the chapter on called the longbow. Yes, about the Battle of Agincourt, and uh, 
Yeah, have we talked about that? Have we passed No, that? we're only up to Crazy. We're about to talk about Crazy in 1346. Who, Churchill, by the way, ranks it ahead of Agincourt. He ranks it with Blenheim, Waterloo in 1918. This, of course, is written before their finest hour. He began it. But talk about that, the longbows. Yeah. Well, um, if, you, if you like Bernard Cornwell, and how can you not? You can uh, he, he writes a book about, called Agincourt. And the, the, the character who carries the story is a longbowman. And he's got this big chest, and he can pull this bow, and his fingers are calloused over, right? And he's practiced and practiced and practiced, and he turns into a devastating force on the battlefield. And he can attack from a distance, uh, fatally, that no attack has ever been possible to launch. It's like air power almost. And, and and the interesting thing is the French know nothing. Know nothing. <laughs> it, it, I feel bad for the French in this book. Yeah, I mean, you know, he just... And, and you know, Henry V, that very great play. Uh, before the Battle of Agincourt, Henry's army and Henry are desperate. They, they're sick. Their numbers have dwindled. They're vastly outnumbered. And they're cut off from supplies and from retreat. Can't get to the sea. British, when the British get in trouble on the continent, they always run for the sea. <laughs> and, and, uh, and they can't get there from here. And so they're, and you know, they, and of course then the French force a battle on them. And they're in their great, in, the, in Shakespeare's account of it, they're in their great pride, you know, and smugness. You know, now we got them. We're going to go kill them. And they're all armored up, and they're all going to charge across open ground. And they discover that they can't get there because they're killed on the way. And that's, you know, that's a innovation in war. It's, it's, it's the reason, by the way, that Germany could conquer France in six week, weeks in 1940. Because the tank had been born, and there had been enough time to think about it that they okay. could move at stunning suddenness, and they took down a great power in six weeks. And that and couldn't have been done without technological advance. And people need to read about these three battles, Crecy, Portier, if I'm saying it correctly, and Agincourt, because when a decisive change occurs, you've got to adapt in a hurry. Uh, you know, America loved its battleships in 1941, and then they were all gone. And we love our aircraft carriers now, and they might all be gone. I don't know that they will be. I'm not a a military expert, but you've got to be aware that the longbow shows up and you're dead. Mm. And, you know, same thing with, uh, yeah, you know, the aircraft carriers, the Japanese Navy, which attacked us at Pearl Harbor, and they did devastating damage, and they didn't destroy any aircraft carriers. And they knew that they needed to because they were on aircraft carriers to launch the attack. But they still thought it was a great victory. But a few months later, we beat them at Midway with aircraft carriers. And that means that one weapon changed world history. Better have the one weapon that you need. When we come back from break, we're going to talk about the Black Death. And I read this differently after COVID and before COVID, and we'll talk about that when we come back. Dr. Larry Arn is the president of Hillsdale College. All things Hillsdale are at hillsdale.edu. If you want an education, you freshmen, 
to be next year or you parents of people who are going through college applications, do not delay. Go and get it in today. Sit down and write the doggone essay. That rhymed. Hillsdale.edu. Well, Dr. Arn, my guest on the Hillsdale Dialogue, the Black Death, that, you want to talk pandemics? There's a pandemic. Yeah. A third or more of the population died. And, you know, just think of what that meant. uh, We've not had that. Well, the Spanish flu in 1918 was very bad. Millions died. But... Even that was hugely milder than the Black Death. And so the physical labor of dealing with the bodies uh, was going on all the time and consumed large parts of the population. And, of course, they didn't know if they could get it from those bodies. And, you know, people would go away to get away from the city, and then they might still come down with it. It was a mystery, and it was devastating. You know, the, it, it occurs 1348 to 1352, and some people give it a year on either end, but there's 12 ships land in Messina. Churchill writes in the book, it came from the Crimea. That is generally believed to be true. It would have gotten there eventually anyway, but Dr. Ron, I wonder, uh, people read books like this still, the history of the English-speaking people, and we've all read that chapter on the Black Plague, and we, and we know that the Black Death was bad, but we don't really, one out of three, one out of three, yeah. That's so, you know, maybe that's the genetic memory we have that made us overreact to COVID. Yeah, let's put it in personal terms. Among you and me and Dwayne, Dwayne's going to go. He's going to go. Yeah, it's going to be Dwayne. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Usually it takes the people who aren't necessary, but yes, it's, it's, it takes. <laughs> <laughs> so that's, yeah, that, and you know, that, that, all these great events are going out. And, you know, one of the things that's going on in this book is that the, the world is getting in better contact with itself, right? Like when the uh, when Caesar landed in Britain, nothing was known about that place, right? When the Vikings came, nothing was known about this place. Now, invaders from Europe and from England to Europe, they know where they're going, and they know who the people are who are there, and they know what it, they think it will take to defeat them. And then all of a sudden... Everything stops, and we're all dying. And why are we dying? Who knows? You know, Neil Ferguson, in his book on catastrophes, points out that those 12 ships, um, that's, a, that's a point in time we can look at. Now there are 12 ships landing at every airport every hour. Yeah. And so if something gets out, it's going to get out. We've got to do better than we did, but we can't do better than we did if we don't ever look at what we did wrong. And the yeah. people are standing in the way of that. And, and God save Anthony Fauci. He may have a long and prosperous retirement, but we won't know until we get, up, get him out of the way what went wrong. Yeah, I only wish his retirement could have been longer. Yeah. Uh, it, uh, that, see, that's, and that's a sign. Remember, that's, there are signs of dysfunction in the government everywhere. And one of them is the inability to look dispassionately at what went wrong. And that's because separation of powers is broken down. And, and now we have this administrative state that makes most of our laws 
and consumes most of the money in government, and they have interests to protect, and they do protect them. And for some reason that I don't fully understand, well, it's ideology, I guess, the press has become their lapdog. Yeah, Dr. Arn, you don't take positions on this show. You're not political. You're not, Hillsdale's nonpartisan. But I do, and I hope Tudor Dixon wins because I want to look at the books in Michigan. I want someone to actually, because I think it was the worst governed state, and I say that advisedly, knowing about Andrew Cuomo sending people into the retirement homes. I know about all the errors everywhere, but the attempt to take over the minutia of daily life was least uh, cabined in Michigan. And I don't know if Tudor Dixon's going to win, but I hope they get into the books. Because I want, I want the story. I want to know how to avoid this again. Has there been any, we did this, it's, as the governor of, of Michigan said, we did anything wrong? <laughs> no. I don't, not, I don't know of anything. Uh, you know, the tacit admission that they don't impose lockdowns when the facts are roughly the same. Uh, you know, lots of people are getting it, uh, even now. And, you know, there's a kind of uh, understanding that we're not going to do that again, except until we forget. Which until we forget. You know, on September 5th, just a few weeks ago, Patty Murray, senator from Washington State, was asked by Dana Bash on CNN, did we make a mistake? And the senator would not admit that closing the schools was a mistake. If we can't get that down... What in the world have we learned? Nothing, I would argue. If we cannot understand that closing the stools was a disaster, we have learned nothing about this. Yeah, I think that's right. And, you know, there's just some huge facts. Um, I'm all organized now with my three geniuses in the Academy for Science and Freedom, and we had a conference the other day. And Kuldorf and Bhattacharya and Scott Atlas were here. And it was a tour de force. I mean, you know, so much, right? And the point is, four million kids went to school unprotected for a year and a half in Sweden, and not one of them died. That is the fact. That is the key fact. Thanks for listening to the Hillsdale Dialogues presented by Hillsdale College. For more episodes, search for Hillsdale Dialogues at SoundCloud, Apple Podcasts, TuneIn, iHeart, or Ricochet. For more information about Hillsdale College, head to hillsdale.edu.